0: Part 5. Inseparable Little Buddy I dreamt I was playing guitar and singing a song. The lyrics were about playing with my baby boy and all the fun things we'd do together, like playing baseball and digging up worms. When I got to the chorus, I sang, You're going to be the most beautiful girl in the world. I woke up in the middle of the song and laughed at how clever it was to lead the listener through each verse as if it's a boy, but then hit them with a twist because girls can do all the things little boys can A little girl would love to play baseball and dig for worms. I considered changing the words to, you're going to be the most beautiful boy in the world. Then I thought of recording two separate versions for a boy and a girl, but I ultimately decided to record the version in my dream. If anything, it'd be funny to explain to my son why the first song I wrote him was about a little girl.
1: I teach you to dig for worms Scrub the dirt from under your nails We'll get them as good as we Out at home. Cause you're- that Mr. Squid, Mrs. Frog, I'll dress you like a princess, and then we'll play with swords.
0: These are some of the things I remember you and mom doing that felt quintessentially parental. I remember riding my bike at the park across the street from our old house, the house with the crooked pine tree in the front yard that never grew taller than 3 feet until we moved out and someone else started taking care of it. There was a drainage ditch you could bomb down and ride up the walls, and I hit a patch of loose gravel and fell to my side. I jumped on my bike and went home as fast as possible to show mom the road rash I had earned and then I happily announced how big a boy I was for not crying. That all changed when she poured hydrogen peroxide over it, and my knees began to bubble and hiss. The second verse is a callback to my brother. We used to play baseball all the time with just the two of us. If you got a hit and made it to the base, you would put a ghost runner on the first and return to hit again. The ghost runner would advance to the next base if you got another base hit. The reference to being at the bottom of the ninth is a callback to one of the last games Shannon and I played. The game was tied, and it was the bottom of the ninth. I had a ghost runner on third, which meant a base hit would win the game. I was standing in the hallway near the front door, and he pitched it from inside the living room. It was a curve ball, low and outside, but I swung for it. My bat went right through the sheet rock of your wall just above the spot where you left your shoes every day after work. The last line is my favorite. While I believe it's important to let your children win, I also think it's equally beneficial for them to lose once in a while. The third verse was essential after the big reveal in the chorus that the song was about a girl. The last verses are about things considered more traditionally girly, so I wanted to hit home the idea that my sweet little princess would likely also love playing with bugs and putting gross things in her mouth. I also wanted to add some activities like playing dress-up and having tea parties to show I was happy to do girly stuff too. Daphne and I wanted to raise our kids in an environment that was as gender-neutral as possible. I was aware of gender roles and their impact, but I never realized the full extent to which those roles are forced on young children. There are so many products on the market that are unnecessarily gendered, like a hammer for women, but the only change is that it's pink and costs slightly more. I wanted to ensure I hadn't overcorrected and just forced male stereotypes on her. She would be allowed to be anything she wanted to be, even if that meant she wanted to be a princess. The song took on an entirely new meaning when the doctor told us we were having a girl. It now felt like my baby girl had visited me in a dream, and she had been the one who wrote those words. That little girl, Pepper May Hamilton, ended up being exactly like the kid in the song. That dream cemented our special bond and she became my inseparable little buddy. Daphne's due date was predicted to be at the end of the month, and by the time we were within a week from Pepper's arrival, we were trying everything we could to encourage labor. Daphne ate spicy food with every meal, danced to Beyonce, and even drank entire spoonfuls of straight olive oil. During the week, I was commuting an hour to school, and taking the most academically challenging classes I had in the program. I was enrolled in pathogenic bacteria, immunology, and quantitative chemistry. These were all courses with long lab hours. I was hoping she'd go into labor on a weekend because I couldn't miss more than a single lab. Starting Friday nights, we would spice up our food and do some light exercise to encourage labor. When Pepper hadn't come by the end of the weekend, we would slow things down, eat bland food, and try to wait it out until the following weekend. On September 10th, I got a message from Daphne just as I was pulling into the school parking lot. Knowing how Pepper turned out, of course she would come on a Monday, despite all our planning. Daphne's water had broken while she was eating her breakfast cereal. She said it was undeniable what had happened but didn't want to freak either of us out by jumping to conclusions. She sent me an ambiguous text message that said, Call me when you can. Regardless of her efforts to remain calm, I read this as, It's go time, call me immediately. As soon as she answered my call, I could tell she was in labor just by the tone of her voice when she said, hello. I told her to relax and that I'd be home as soon as possible. I turned around and jumped back on the highway. I thought it was hilarious that Pepper waited until Monday. Not only would I miss the most classes, but she also let me get all the way to school before deciding to make her grand entrance. I was nervously laughing and fighting back the tears of joy the entire ride home. I called you, soon to be Papa Jean, and I told you she was about to arrive. At the time, you were living in West Texas and were waiting for that call before booking a flight to come see us. We had tested Daphne for Group B Strep, so we weren't worried about any infection risk to the baby. We had planned to do most of the labor at a hotel near the hospital, where we could have more privacy, and we knew it would be a very long time before Pepper would be close to being here. When you answered the phone, you sounded very concerned. This was true of every call to anyone the closer we got to the due date. I explained that I was driving in our home, and then we'd drive an hour to our hotel near the hospital before checking into the birthing center. You were shocked we weren't racing straight to the hospital and expressed your uneasiness. Labor in the movies usually depicts a lady's water breaking, and then it's this crazy hectic emergency with a clueless father and a screaming mother. We were as prepared as we could be. We had gone to every Lama's class, researched hospitals, read books, and planned this day down to the go-bag with everything we would need. Instead of a rush panic, we went to Target and walked around before getting some lunch at Mr. Pickles. When I got home, Daphne was cleaning the house with an anxious, yet stoic, look on her face. We gathered our things, stopped on our way out the door to take one last picture, and promptly forgot to grab our go-bag and left it in the kitchen. By the time we got to the hospital two hours later, she had regular contractions about eight minutes apart. They hooked her up to a monitor, and we could hear Pepper's happy little heartbeat. Everything was progressing wonderfully, so they let us leave for our local hotel. Daphne had been pretty cheerful up until we got to the hotel. The contractions were getting stronger, and the pain demanded her undivided attention. My in-laws got a room next door to ours, but they gave Daphne and me some space, they just wanted to be around when the baby came or if we needed anything. Daphne's sister Danny and her husband Jared also showed up to say hi, but they too stayed next door. By about 10pm, Daphne couldn't take it anymore, her contractions were getting close to 4 minutes apart and she had stopped talking to focus all of her attention on breathing. We said goodbye to everyone for the night and left for the hospital. Part 6, 1313 We were checked into the hospital, and again we monitored Pepper's little heart rate. I assume the nursing staff knew we weren't close to meeting her yet because they left us alone for several hours. Daphne closed her eyes at around midnight and didn't open them again until about 1.30pm the next day, but she stayed awake, swaying from side to side. I could tell the pain was worsening, and she was starting to go into a primal survival mode. Her back was hurting, and constant massaging pressure was the only thing that helped alleviate it. I rubbed her back and did my best to be encouraging while Daphne gently rocked with her eyes closed. By 3 AM in the morning, my arms were too exhausted to continue, and I was falling asleep. I would startle awake each time Daphne commanded me to keep pressing her lower back, and I think she was frustrated by the pain and my constant nodding off. Finally, she said,
1: Do you want me to just get the epidural so you can get some sleep?
0: I sat up and told her, the doula will be here in a few hours, hang on, you've got this. Setting a goal of waiting for the doula gave us a little energy, and she pushed on through the night. Finally, the doula arrived around 6am in the morning and didn't leave our side until Pepper came. I was too stressed and tired to remember the doula's name, but she knew exactly what we needed. She got Daphne up and moving around and gave us lots of great advice. We were also assigned a nurse, Vicky. Vicky was such a tremendous help that I was prepared to let her deliver the baby when the time came, but it was Dr. Bianca who had the honor of meeting her first. Every time Daphne would push, I would get choked up. I had never seen anyone in that much pain, let alone the woman I loved, but she was so strong and dedicated to naturally bringing our daughter into this world. I was so blown away by her strength. We moved from the bed to the toilet, to the shower, and back to the bed for 28 hours straight. We eventually reached a point where Pepper was ready, but the only position working for Daphne was sitting on the toilet. To avoid pooping Pepper into the bowl, the doula gave us a birthing stool. I sat behind her and held her up while she pushed. This phase of labor was the most special to me because I felt like I was part of bringing Pepper into the world. I would squeeze Daphne close and push against her hands, giving her something to lean back on. With each push, I could feel our teamwork bringing our baby into the world. At 13.30, 13, Pepper screamed hello as Bianca flopped her bloody, uncoordinated body onto Daffy's chest. We couldn't do anything but cry laugh. We had prepared as much as possible for our new baby, but nothing prepares you for colic. Pepper wouldn't breastfeed, and she cried non-stop. We would try changing her diaper, breastfeeding, burping her, and then napping. When none of those things worked, we'd start the process over and try changing her again. We would cycle through the classics until she cried herself to sleep. Not being able to comfort your child makes you feel like a failure. I can't imagine how Daphne felt when she also couldn't get Pepper to feed. Pepper's weight began to drop, and we had to pump the breast milk and bottle feed her. The more we bottle fed, the less likely it became that Pepper would ever learn to latch on. We both knew how important it was that Pepper got natural breast milk, but Daphne shouldered the burden and the lion's share of the guilt. Breastfeeding is talked about as natural and maternal, and mothers are often shamed if they decide to use the bottle instead. Since Pepper had such bad colic and refused to latch, Daphne felt unnatural, less maternal, and ashamed for using a bottle despite filling it with her breast milk. She pumped every day and struggled with painful clotting milk ducts. She was working so hard for our baby, but none of it seemed to matter because of Pepper's colic. I was trying to finish the semester, but I kept getting phone calls from Daphne. She'd be crying, worried about Pepper. Daphne was developing postpartum depression, and I felt awful having to leave them both every morning for school. I missed a few labs for my quantitative chemistry class, and I couldn't find time to make them up. I was so far behind that I couldn't move on to subsequent labs because I didn't have the reagents made from previous labs. I knew I'd have to drop my classes, but that meant I'd lose my scholarships and it would extend my graduation date. Given the choice a million times over, I'd choose my family every single time. It was six months of colic, just non-stop crying. Daphne and I had been together for five years when Pepper was born, and we had never fought over anything. There was no telling how we would do when things weren't going great. A major defining moment in every relationship is not how much you love each other at your happiest, it's how you manage to continue loving each other at your most miserable. I was raised in a family that doesn't talk about emotions. As an artist, I learned to listen to my voice and find creative ways of expressing my feelings, but I always struggled with sharing those feelings with you. I can't imagine I would have stayed sober while trying to handle the immensely difficult combination of a colicky baby and a depressed wife if I hadn't worked on developing better coping mechanisms and maintain good communication with my wife. Bottling up our frustrations and not expressing our expectations of each other would eventually have blown up in our faces. I'm fortunate to have the wife that I do. We researched together, shared chores, and split responsibilities. Slowly, we got through it day by day. Notably, I never once felt the need to drink during this time. Daphne had literally saved my life, so I felt like I owed it to her to be the best partner I could be. That's the difference between having a problem and having a partner. I was doing microbiology research and was learning more about the human microbiome. I was fascinated by how much our health depends on the diversity of our gut microbes. Several studies showed that the right combination of gut bacteria in infants could cure colic symptoms. We tried a variety of probiotics that we would add to the breast milk in Pepper's bottle. Within two days, Pepper's colic completely vanished. She was now consolable and even started smiling at us and interacting more. We felt awful we hadn't tried it sooner but we also felt like we had figured out a mysterious complication together as a family. I felt more in tune with my wife and my child. We were a team and became acutely aware of what Pepper needed. We found she did better with a schedule. The more we could provide her with consistency, the happier she was. If Pepper were comfortable, then Daphne would be satisfied. I could ensure my family's happiness and emotional security by correctly managing the day's routine. When you would come to visit, My insistence on maintaining that level of routine appeared to be coming off as a personal attack on you and the things you wanted to do while you were visiting. Around the same time, my eight-year contract with the military ended, and I was about to graduate with my bachelor's. I had to decide if I wanted to re-enlist or pursue my new civilian career. Staying in the military until retirement had never been my goal, but I think you expected I would. I was almost halfway to retirement, and it represented that stability you always wanted for me. Unfortunately, two things happened the year prior that had soured my feelings towards staying in. The first thing that changed my perspective of military life was in 2015, a Doctors Without Borders-run trauma hospital in Kunduz, Afghanistan, was repeatedly struck by United States air strikes. General Campbell released multiple conflicting reports on why they chose to attack the hospital, only to conclude later that it was a a mistake. In the end, 42 innocent civilians were killed, but no charges were levied against anyone involved. A blatant breach of humanitarian law that amounted to nothing short of a war crime ended with an apology from Barack Obama and an insulting $6,000 condolence payment to each family affected. The second thing that happened was the following year when politics would polarize the country during the transition into the Trump administration. There was word that Trump wanted to send troops from my unit to guard the Mexican border and to help build the infamous wall. The military and the country I served in felt different than they had when I first joined. Had I not had any other options, maybe I would have made a different choice, but I was now licensed as a scientist, and I took it as an opportunity to start a new chapter. As I was walking away from the military, the presidential candidates were arguing about making college tuition-free. Reflecting on my own experience, it occurred to me why college had to be so expensive. The government's ability to amass an all-volunteer military force relies on tuition being so astronomically unachievable that people are willing to risk their lives for military benefits. I was fortunate to have the privilege to walk away from it all and focus on my family and career. I'm not sure you could see past the fact that I was walking away from a stable career, a guaranteed retirement, and that I was doing so with a young family. You had been so proud of me for the last eight years and now, it seemed things had changed between us yet again. I wondered if you ever treated my brother with the same concern or if you trusted his decisions." Admittedly, I hadn't exactly built a reputation for making great decisions, but I was leaving the military to begin a promising career as a scientist. I wasn't putting my family in financial hardship. We were starting the next chapter of our lives just as we had done everything up to this point, as a team. I felt like you always treated me like a little boy and couldn't see me for the man I was becoming. Worse, I couldn't just assume it was because you were my dad and I would always be a boy in your eyes because you always seemed to treat my brother with respect and admired the man he had become. These potential issues came to a head while floating on a tiny raft in the middle of the lake. I wanted to share my feelings with you, tell you everything I had been through, and express how I wished to be seen as a man in your eyes. I instead answered your question about how things were going with my stepmom and lost the opportunity. With a chuckle, I told you about how my stepmom had washed a single bra in the washing machine and how it was the final straw for Daphne. Maybe if I could make it light enough that you could bring it up to her in an equally playful way, she wouldn't get her feelings hurt, but she could also stop doing the thing disturbing my very pregnant wife. We could combine our delicates and live happily ever after. You grew quiet and cold almost immediately. I don't know if you mentioned anything to her after our boat ride but everything changed when we returned home. I assume you told her what I said, and she complained to you about some of the things that bothered her. You both eventually came to your own conclusions without us. I feel relatively confident that this happens every time we get together. Things always start out okay, but if I do something that upsets her, she talks to you about it, and then the rest of the vacation is disturbed. For example, she will expect us to help clean the house while visiting you, but she won't ever ask us to help we will eat dinner and go to bed, leaving dishes in the sink. The next day, she is cleaning the dishes and ruminating on the fact that we're unappreciative and unamiable. Soon she talks with you, your attitude toward me changes, and then you grow cold. Since this family never talks about their emotions or expresses their expectations of each other, we walk on eggshells the entire time until the vacation ends. It happens so often that I stop being as open with her, afraid that she was the reason I could never share my story with you. Eventually, my coldness is enough to trigger your conversations, and the vacation is awkward anyway. Daphne and I started trying to pick up on clues. We cleaned and overexpressed our gratitude, but hurting her feelings felt inevitable. You would become unexpectedly cold, the awkwardness would ensue, and I would feel too burnt out to try and decipher the cryptic messages. Daphne and I had a good routine built for Pepper, who was now almost two years old. We knew there was a possibility of sibling jealousy, so we had everything planned out, down to the gift baby Jade would give her when they first met. We also had several rules for Pepper that we put in place because she was prone to irritability. We always joked about it but also believed on some level that this was a remnant of her colic. She had a semi-strict diet that limited processed foods and refined sugars. I had done so much research on the gut microbiome and had seen, firsthand the effect certain types of food had on her behavior, that I swore by it and rarely went against the routine we built. We also limited her screen time for phones and television, following the guidance of our doctor in every book we had read. Now that I worked the graveyard and slept during the day, these rules were left for Daphne to enforce. When you came to care for Pepper while Daphne rested, those responsibilities fell on you. I fully understand why you would want to give her candy and treats she loves getting those things, and you like being a fun grandpa. I know the joy it brings you when you take her to the store and let her have any toy she wants. What I don't think you understand is that when you leave, she expects the candy, she craves the treats, and she has a meltdown every time we go to the store, and we try to enforce our rules again. We are left to let you change our routine or fight with you over relatively benign, stupid little things. When it's a vacation, We usually let you do that sort of thing as much as you want, and then we fight with Pepper for the next three weeks until her body gets used to the old diet and routine again. This particular visit wasn't a vacation, though. You had specifically come here to help us enforce Pepper's rules so that when Jade came, it would have a negligible impact on the delicate structure we had built. We had a plan, and we needed your help sticking to it. I was sound asleep when Daphne woke me up in the middle of the day and chose the battle I'd soon have with you.